Hello, fellow crossers. It's week seven of ABC's The Crossing Podcast, the place where we discuss all things crossing-related, going in-depth on the episode you just saw and exploring the science behind the fiction. With us, as always, Dan Dworkin, the creator of the show. Co-creator, I should say. Hi. Uh, and not with us is the other guy. Again, Jay. Jay. Empty chair. <laughs> but back with us again. Uh, he's so nice, he's doing it twice. Executive producer, Jason T. Reed. Hello. Thanks for being here. I'm your host, ABC Radio's Jason Nathanson. And let's just jump right into this week's episode. Titled, Some Dreamers of the Golden Dream. All right. Uh, we have, we've been asking you guys to uh, tweet at us at the crossing pot, hashtag the crossing podcast. Uh, and we do have a question from David Skidmore, uh, who says, anyone keeping a list of all the biblical names of the characters on the show, <laughs> should we be? Hmm. Should you be? Yeah. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I think we've explained in prior podcasts the alignment of the names or the correlations, but it, it, it breaks down very simply. There, there isn't too much to it. The, com, the commons who have come back, uh, the refugees have biblical names, older Old Testament names, and the apex, even though we've only met one so far, Reese, do not. So the, the refugees, the commons represent the old and the apex represent the new, and that was just one kind of simple way to do it. And yeah, it's, it's quite a few people have noticed the, uh, the biblical names. Well, and then the anagram for when you put all the biblical names together. Yes. Which will be revealed <laughs> when the dragons fly. Interesting. The dragons actually Episode, spell it out in the sky. Episode 12, when the dragons fly. Uh, and Port Canaan, is there any significance in Canaan? Cause Canaan was a name from the- that. Yes. That is another one. Well, okay. So that's, that's interesting. We, I suggested the name Port Canaan, and but the whole time I thought it was kind of a um, just a placeholder because I thought we would eventually change it because I thought it was too on the nose because mm-hmm. I thought everyone knows Canaan's the promised land, but that's me. I'm a Jewish guy who went to Hebrew school three days a week growing <laughs> up, and I knew about Canaan as the promised land, but then I started asking people, and most people have no, no. they've never heard of Port Canaan. So yes, that has that has meaning. Well, it's also as well. interesting because things didn't turn out too well for the Canaanites, right? In the original story, and it's not. It might not be turning out too well for our Canaanites on the show. <laughs> the Port Canaanites. The Port Canaanites. But we also, and that also leads to one of my favorite jokes of the week um, when Rebecca asks about the shirt straight out of Canaan. And that's what, funny. What that means. Yeah, I wish I could say I came up with that. Yeah. Uh, also, th- this is a two-part question from David Skidmore. Uh, why in the future are smoothies no longer a thing? Well, I think that for the commons, uh, there is not an abundance of fruit <laughs> that one would usually make smoothies with. Kind I think a luxury is, item is the conceit there. I mean, because you, in order to make a smoothie, you think. To me, the, the, think about all the fruit that goes into a smoothie. I mean, you could throw a whole banana in there. You throw like seven or eight frozen strawberries, some blueberries, some kiwi, whatever you want. It's a ton. It's a bowl More of fruit. More than you would eat on yeah. your own. Yeah, so to, to a suppressed population without access to like one piece of fruit, much less bowls and bowls of fruit, that would seem incredibly luxurious. The notion of a, a delicacy that's just a bunch of fruit blended up. Like, so... All right, so before we get into the science fiction stuff... Wait, speaking of delicacies... Yes. Before we go on, I, I brought... And I'm so sad that Jay isn't here, because this was really supposed to be for Jason and Jay and myself. Oh, no! But I, I have something... 
uh, that ties back into Port Canaan and oh. and to uh, the to delicacies. So I have just produced a bottle of Fireball from my backpack sneakily oh, from under the table. Who has not paid a promotional? Uh, <laughs> has not. And and the reason is, and if you don't know what Fireball is, it is a pretty um, distasteful cinnamon whiskey. That is uh, basically the millennials' version of Jägermeister. I've learned but to love I, it. I have to say that my mom loves. She does. Yeah. Uh, well, I'm going to pour us each me. a little shot of it to celebrate this, the seventh episode of the podcast. And the reason I'm producing Fireball is because there's a little inside uh, meaning. <laughs> in one of the original, in the original draft of the script, we never shot it. We, we, we used to introduce the character of Marshall in episode one. Right now in the series, he's introduced in episode two. Right. And it's a scene in which he's hung over with his friends in a local coffee shop, and there's um, some funny dialogue, and they reference Fireball. And when we wrote it, Jason said, what's Fireball? <laughs> and so Fireball became, became a running gag. And when we were up shooting the pilot, I bought a little pint of it, and we each took a little nip off it during the pilot, and so I thought it only appropriate to take a nip off it here uh, as we talk science. And as the pilot and, went on, we took more and more nips yeah. and bought bigger and bigger bottles. So, so is that what Marshall was going to, when he was on the beach and he, he leaves Hannah? Is that what he was going to get with some Fireball? Uh no, I think his character changed between the writing of the pilot and the filming of what we did to a character who drinks harder, like, you know, maybe, maybe a, a, a bourbon or, oh, okay. you know, um, something a little like more that. sophisticated. Yeah, this maybe, is, he's, he's not as uh, he's not as high class. Maybe as Miller High Life. Uh, well, champagne of beers. As you pour, speaking of liquids. Um, Are you going to have some, Casey? I'm talking to Casey, our producer. Sure. Okay, <laughs> one, one of the running gags that I think I just got um, in this episode was Lindauer's love of coffee. He's a coffee <laughs> connoisseur. Oh, uh, thank you for getting that. And I've, 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 noticed, I've noticed him, but it wasn't until this episode where I'm like, okay, this is now a thing with him. This is a character yeah, trait It with absolutely him. is. <laughs> where did that come from? That, well, this kind of, I mean, I appreciate that in the, our last podcast, you, you said how every, people should know that everything is thought through and nothing is just a throwaway. This is a prime example of that. Uh, there is a story by Ray Bradbury called The Fox in the Forest, and it is, and I've said this in interviews before, it is a, was a huge uh, factor in coming up with the idea for this show. Uh, it is a, it's a time travel story, and it's about people, uh, it's about time travel tourism, basically, where they will send you back for a week to, you know, from the future to New York. The story takes place in the 60s, I think. Anyway, the point is, when people from the future come back, much like uh, Thomas coming back and, and being amazed at a smoothie, they come back and, and they don't have the luxuries, they don't have the range of tastes that we have. So, mm. so one way to identify in the story someone who's from the future is if they're like smoking five different cigarettes and cigars <laughs> and like trying all these liqueurs and liquors and drinks like you see like at once, like that's someone who is just imbibing like crazy because they're, they don't have that kind of stuff. So that was, the, and I told Jay Carnes who played the role about that and, and explained to him why in the pilot, you know, there's, there's a coffee scene where he meets Emma and we meet him for the first time and he asks her, he's like, this is del- it's a wonderful coffee, would right. you like it? Um, and I, expl- I gave him the story, explained him why that was in there and how I wanted him, like in every scene, to have uh, coffee and to talk about how great the coffee was. And so, yeah, so you got it. That's it. <laughs> That's fantastic. Cheers, guys. Cheers. Cheers. Some fireball. Fireball. From. There we go. Oh, my goodness. 
Oh yeah, smooth. Yeah, <laughs> um, it's not really a sip and drink. I would I would shoot it, but but, but, but it's <laughs> up to you guys. Yeah, uh, and also uh, a great episode because we do we get this field trip. Now we get to see. Mm. Uh, we saw Hannah go out into the town, but now we get to see kind of everybody go out into the town and see this world and experience it. Um, and that was, I have to imagine that that's a lot of fun to write and a lot of fun to make. Uh, yeah. De- I mean, Deirdre, who wrote this episode, did such a great job with that. Some of the dialogue, like the stuff where Marshall's giving them Roy and Hannah and the others the tour, the tour and they stop at the statue the guy with the nipples and he <laughs> and he has that whole back and forth with Roy where he keeps getting his name wrong right. and Roy's like that's not my name I love it <laughs> she killed all that stuff and yeah. she yeah she had a lot of fun writing it I think and we get uh, we have met this character before but we now get kind of a motivation for uh, Marker Girl um, I don't what, do we have a name for Marker Girl Naomi Naomi who now Naomi. has all this kind of fascinating, interesting stuff going on. She wakes up and asks for Eli, uh, and then she goes into the cabin and starts marking the whole thing in the what we learn is the apex language. Yes. Um, I don't know. I don't have a question there. I'm just saying it's, it's interesting, I guess. I um, love where she's going to go. She, she, has, she has a different energy than any of the characters mm-hmm. we met thus far. She has a different relationship to the future. She has a mystical relationship to the show. And again, w- without spoiling, she, she is going to change the dynamic at the camp substantially mm. because she, has, she carries a power that the other characters there don't. And it, is, uh, it stems from her astute knowledge of history, which to us is our future. And that's something that the other refugees and commons were in large part cut off from. Um, But she, because of her unique situation, being kind of embedded with Apex, was exposed to those things. And that gives her an enormous amount of power. Well, let's get into, I know literature is a big thing for, for you guys when it comes to the show and the shaping of the future and the past and all, all these conversations. Um, so scientifically, how does that affect things? And in terms of sci-fi literature, and one of the reasons like we wanted Jason to come on again, um, I'll just say like I was really moved by something that Pablo Holman said when um, we initially talked to him. It wasn't on the podcast, but when we talked to him a year ago, and we did our initial batch of research with him, and he started talking about sci-fi literature. And specifically, Robert Heinlein. He talked about he talked about how Rob, the 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 books of Rob, the stories of Robert Heinlein inspired a generation of people to go on and basically create NASA as we know it and put a man on the moon. Hmm. Reading those books as kids mm-hmm. inspired those people to become who they were and to advance our world in that monumental way. Ditto for Neil Stevenson, who wrote Snow Crash, who who kind of pioneered the ideas of VR in that book and others. I haven't read a lot of Neil Stevenson. It's very dense. dense. Um, <laughs> but those people, those ki- kids who read Snow Crash went on to pioneer virtual reality in our world, which is obviously an enormous quantum leap technology. Right. So I thought, wow, that's so amazing. Like I was just touched by it in a way. Like I was like, what if we could create, not that this is going to be that show, but like, to be able to create something like that that can inspire a generation to change the world. 
Hmm. That's what sci-fi literature can do. And I never thought about it in those terms. And Jason knows a lot about that stuff. And we're trying to think of someone to come on and talk about sci-fi literature. And Casey said, uh, Jason, <laughs> Jason <laughs> would be great. He runs a publishing company that deals with sci-fi literature. So anyway. But I, just to go back, we started Brick, Brick Moon. The reason we Brick Moon Fiction is named after uh, an Edward Everett Hale short story uh, that was published in the Atlantic Monthly in 1869 called The Brick Moon. And it was, uh, the genre at the time was called a, it was called a fantastical. And the, um, it was a fake, um, diary, uh, journal from a couple of scientists. Now this is a little long, but I think it's kind of fun to get there. (laughs) So in the, in the early 1800s, the Royal Navy, the English Royal Navy, um, was the most powerful navy in the world, and they had a lot of resources. And their big problem in navigation was determining longitude. Latitude was very easy; you could use the stars, you could figure out where your declination was, and all of that. Very simple. Longitude was a big problem. They didn't know whether they were east or west. Hmm. Um, so they, so Parliament established something called the Longitudinal Prize, which was the precursor to the X Prize and things like that. It was all about how do we uh, inspire. Uh, investigators and thinkers to come up with a way to solve our problem. And it turned out it was uh, chronometers, very precise chronometers was the way they ended up doing it. And if you got an incremental improvement in the ability to get longitude, you would get a certain amount of money and blah, 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 blah. So building on that, um, Everett Hale wrote a fantastical story where he just wanted to come up with something kind of crazy and wacky. So he had the, he told the story of two guys who decided they were going to win the ex- win this uh, longitudinal prize by um, creating a, f- a fake a fake planet, so a fake moon, so that um, you know you use the North Star to tell your latitude. So why not just create a fake North Star and uh, we'll build it out of bricks? And they had this elaborate steam pulley contraption that's going to fling it up into the air. And their idea was that you would fling it up in the air, and as the Earth rotated around, it would keep falling back to Earth, and the Earth would just move out from underneath it, so it would sort of stay in the same place, and you could use it uh, to measure your your longitude. And in the story, the mistake is made. There's an an industrial accident that takes place, and uh, the switch gets thrown early. This thing gets tossed into space, and the bricklayers are still on it. And so, uh, you know, it gets up there, and it doesn't quite go to the right place, and it doesn't work, and it's all financial ruin for their, you know, for their endeavor. What Uh, happens to the bricklayers? That was my... First thoughts. It, turn, well, it turns into gravity, and well, they got to Sandra Bullock their way back to Earth. <laughs> so, ki- kind of. But here's here's what's kind of crazy about it. So, this is 1869. The idea of geosynchronous orbit has never been floated previous. Okay. The fir- and by the way, that is kind of how geosynchronous orbit works. You, you throw something up. You throw something up. You get it in the right place at the right speed, and everything, the universe moves away from it, and and it stays there and keeps falling towards the Earth, but the Earth moves out from right. it. So he figured that out. It is the first reference to an artificial satellite in in history. It is the first mention of a manned space station in history. What year again was the story? Nin- 1869. That's cool. So you have, uh, so the bricklayers are trapped on this moon. Now they didn't necessarily understand the vacuum of space and all of that. So they assumed that they could breathe and <laughs> the gravitational effects weren't known yet. <laughs> but so these bricklayers, so it was actually done in a, a series. So there were three stories published in, in subsequent months. 
And the fourth story was Life on the Brick Moon, which is the story of a bunch of bricklayers living on, uh, you know, a space station. So this is the first time any of this has been done, and that's what inspired us. No engineer at the time would have thought of this because it was so ridiculous. It was patently ridiculous to think of this idea of an artificial satellite and a manned space station. Why would you even do that? However, uh, a, a, a writer came up with a, a fabulist and someone with a great imagination came up with this idea that then became real. And, and sort of our belief is that all of these, you know, there, there's a lot of ways that technology can evolve. There's a lot of problems that can be solved, but those all start with someone having the imagination to say, I, I want to solve that problem, or wouldn't that be cool? Or we, we, we should do this thing. And, you know, there's hundreds and hundreds of examples of people who are inspired, whether it's by Heinlein or Jules Verne is sort of the granddaddy uh, uh, of this. Um, you know, the, 20, the, the, the nuclear submarine. The right? nuclear submarine. So in 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea came out in 1872, and it was the, there were submarines that existed. So there was the, the turtle that was used during the Revolutionary War where they t- basically took like an, a big barrel and put a little screw on it, and they went up and tried to sink a, a British warship with a limpet mine in, <laughs> uh, in the harbor. It didn't work particularly well. Uh, and then during the uh, Civil War, there was a submarine the, that the rebels built called the Hunley uh, that also didn't work. It was based kind of like a torpedo with guys in it uh, that also did not work uh, very well. But Jules Verne, you know, in, in, contemporaneously, 1870s, um, came up with this idea of a nuclear-powered submarine, and he also developed the tactics and strategies that you might use if you had a ship that could stay underwater and had all these people in it. And and how would you do it? Oh, divers can come out the bottom of it and all this crazy stuff that an engineer, again, wouldn't think of because it would be silly, but that a fiction writer uh, would. Then in uh, 1898, there was an American uh, inventor and engineer named Simon Lake, and he was so inspired by the Jules Verne tale that he read when he was a young man that he went and built a submarine called the Argonaut, which is the first modern submarine. Uh, it has, you can, divers can go in it. It actually works. It has ballast tanks. It goes up and down. And then ultimately, when the U.S. Navy launched their first nuclear-powered submarine in the 50s, they named it the Nautilus after, after Jules Verne. So that's a, even going back to H.G. Wells, who came up with the idea of really came up with the idea of artificial atomic energy. So in the 18, his 1914, he wrote a book called Set the World Free, I think. And he describes the sort of world government coming up with a artificial nuclear reaction like the power of the sun and that it freed the world to provide everybody with, you know, power and mm-hmm. that basically all our material needs would be met by, by doing this. One of the early, um, I'll forget his name, Leo's, uh, um, Leo Sislard, I believe. He was a Czech nuclear physicist, read that book. He was, he was, uh, he was already a physicist when he, when he uh, read the book. And then he dedicated his life to trying to save the world through the creation of nuclear energy. And in 1932, he was the first guy to create a fission reaction, an artificial fission reaction, in the world. So like, there's like, 
what you're talking about is like there's yeah. direct connections. One of the most famous, and I'll stop rambling. Yeah, I promise. No, it's interesting. One of the most famous more and most recent <laughs> is um, a guy named Martin Cooper, and he was the lead engineer at Motorola in throughout the 60s and oh, 70s. I love this story. This is great. And um, and at the time, Motorola was this tiny little company, and AT and T Bell Labs was crushing them, like just crushing it. AT&T had all the money in the world. Bell Labs had the best scientists, all the greatest stuff. And they were coming out with, I mean, a lot of the technologies that were developed there went on to, you know, become the basis of a lot of things that we take for granted uh, technologically. And this guy was like, we got to, we got to find a way to like leap ahead of them. He was a huge Star Trek fan. And so he was always taken by the fact that Captain Kirk could flip out his communicator and flip it open and talk to people on the ship or on other planets. And the whole idea of the personal communicator, like he became obsessed with this. So when they had to come up with the sort of game changing idea to beat AT&T, he said, well, that's what we need to do. We need to figure out how to make a personal communicator. Mm. And that is where the cell phone came from. It came from these guys at Motorola focusing in, how do we do this? They built the entire concept of the cell system. And in 1973, he, he, was, he had a little floor, uh, he had a little flair for, uh, for marketing as well. In New York City, he uh, made the world's first cell phone call at a press conference in a great uh, theatrical moment. Uh, he called the head of Bell Labs to tell him that they were out of date. Um, <laughs> but they did this. That was in 1973? 1973 was the first cell phone call. 1984 was the first commercially available cell phone by Motorola. The I think it was called like the Dynatac 8000. It sounds like a crazy sci-fi name, like the Dynatac 8000X or right. something crazy. And, um, and uh, it took him 10 years to build the infrastructure and to figure out. And, and the thing like, was crazy. It's like a huge brick yeah. and it weighs like two and a half pounds. It worked for like 20 minutes. And, uh, and if you were on wall street, you had one. Yeah, basically like, well, I think it was like, if you were in a four mile grid of New York city, you could use right. it. And, uh, and it was like $10,000. <laughs> but, um, but then 10 years later, you know, everybody had it. And, and the, and one of the great things, they couldn't build the communicator cause they, it was two and a half pounds and it was this huge brick with a handheld battery, this whole thing. But his goal was to shrink it down and make it a flip phone because that's what Kirk had right. on the show. So then the StarTac, which was really the first I remember that blowout StarTac, the coolest phone ever when it came out, right? right. It, it wasn't designed because that was easier to engineer. It wasn't designed that way because it fundamentally worked better than the brick phone. It was designed that way because in his mind... That's what a personal communicator looked like because that's what Kirk and Spock used. And so, like, I think one of one of our hopes always, certainly with Brick Moon and I, and with the Crossing as well, is how do we how do we inspire that next generation to think about those issues? And this show is just layered upon layered with the real sort of questions that come up with this. Like when you start when you move past biologically driven evolution into engineered advancement, a lot of questions come up. 
and I don't know if I, I don't think you guys ever talked about it in the podcast, like why did why did humans come up with time travel and not the super smart apex? Have you ever talked about? Well, we haven't gotten there in the series yeah. yet, so we didn't want to talk too, yeah. too much about that. Um, but that that's an interesting question. There there was we did discuss internally uh, the idea that you know they the apex unwittingly engineered out of themselves like the the spark of craziness that would yeah. that would inspire someone to come up with some of the wackier ideas like by engineering yourself to be uh you know content on, too, too on task and, and too 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 driven in a certain direction maybe you're closing yourself off to certain inspirations but but that that was just all kind of philosophical meditation we did internally i did actually just look up something while you were talking about the flip phone it reminded me of something it's not quite the same thing but i don't know if you know like in in 2001 the movie in mm-hmm. 2001 oh, the they samsung. have the, the ipads the samsung like, case like there's a shot of the astronauts like at their in the big I'm sure there's a name for it, but like at their desk in the big circle, um, there's a couple things that they're looking at that have news feeds on them that are, look just like iPads. Yeah. And that the, was in, you read know, in the BBC the, in the sixties. And there was a, there was a lawsuit a few years ago or something where Apple was suing Samsung saying they were infringing on their, the, the design of the uh-huh. iPad. And as evidence, Samsung like entered Should into come. evidence <laughs> the shots of these astronauts in 2001 looking at something that looked just like an iPad. And they're like, nah, Kubrick had it before you guys. Right. And that was 1968. Yeah. Right. So uh, Kubrick. Uh, is there something from your show specifically that you guys want to see come to fruition to ex- exist in this world, at least maybe now or sometime in the future? Well, I don't know because it's not, in a way, it's not that type of show. In a way, like we aren't, there aren't new technologies being invented in our show. You know what I mean? Right. Like, like new novel technologies. It all takes place in Port Canaan for the most part, you know, sure. in, in the world that we know. So it's not that I'd love to do, and this show could possibly become that. There's a lot of ideas to think on, you know, in our show. But as far as like technologies being created that could inspire people, actual inventors to go out and invent them in the way Jason's talking about. Right. We don't have that. Okay. You know, we don't really have that. Um, not to say we couldn't, but it's definitely, I, I want to do a show or a movie where, where, where that is layered into it. Cause it's just so interesting, like hearing him talk about it and, and just the stuff that Pablos was talking about. It's like, wow, it'd be great to just see a giant timeline of how literature has inspired these technological developments. Like, and it's just so interesting. Well, on that note, as we uh, drink the last of our fireball, thank you very much for that. Salud. Uh, that's all the time we have for, or that's all we have time for this week. The Crossing Podcast is a production of Brick Moon Fiction. Thanks again to Dan Dworkin for coming in here. Thank and you. to Jay Beattie for not coming in. <laughs> and our guest executive producer, Jason Reed. You can always ask us questions. Go to Twitter and do the hashtag The Crossing Podcast if you want to know anything or have those answers on the show. I'm your host, ABC Radio's Jason Nathanson, and we'll cross paths next week.